A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and co-host of the Sleezoids podcast, Josh Lewis. Since the beginning of cinema, we've had movies about gangsters. One of the big drivers of the implementation of the Hayes Code in 1930, gangster movies before and after the Code had very different messages when it came to the virtues of crime. However, nothing has ever stopped audiences from enjoying the effortless cool that seems to emanate from the silver screen gangsters and the actors who are defined by their roles in these movies. 1991 was a banner year for the gangster movie, led in by classics like The Untouchables in 1987, a new generation of filmmakers like John Singleton and Quentin Tarantino, as well as old guard like Scorsese and Barry Levinson, seemed determined to put their stamp on the genre. Now, Josh, you are an exploitation expert, so I assume you have seen one or two gangster films. I've seen a couple. <laughs> a couple. What do you think brings people back for the gangster movie? Like, we've had these since the dawn of cinema. It's wild. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think that's a good question. For for me, I think early on, anyway, the you know that the the appeal of the gangster movie does go back to it, its origins. Recently, on uh, our podcast, Lezoids, we just did an episode where we were talking about Mervyn Leroy, and we were talking about his film "I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang," which had um, Paul Muni, uh, who's the original Tony in, in Scarface as well, and came out the same year, and uh, who also did Little Caesar with Edward G. Robinson. And so it seemed like, you know, these, all of these guys were kind of connected to each other, and they were all shared in a way by this kind of Great Depression-era reality that they were all sort of living in. And so on some level, I think the gangster film was born a little bit out of a bit of a social realist depiction of, you know, financially desperate characters, which was kind of appealing to audiences. But there's also kind of like this bleak revenge power fantasy and kind of pulp thrills to the subsequent gunfights and car chases and, you know, in, in the streets that were born from those anxieties and frustrations as, as well. So then all you do is throw in a couple, you know, expressionist style choices and some <laughs> tough, hard boiled ways that the characters were performed and you know, it, it, I think people kind of uh, were able to both identify with some of the situations those characters were in while also being able to indulge in, you know, some of the downfalls and the scene uh, chewing that, that would take place by Muni or James Cagney. And, you know, it just it totally makes sense why these films were as beloved as as they were. And then why when film nerds were the ones behind the cameras in the 70s through the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it made sense that, you know, why those characters kind of had a bit of a resurgence as well. Like those were the films those guys loved. We also love these moralistic gray characters. And you start to see them in these indie film resurgences, like in the 70s, like in the 90s, because they just make such complicated, interesting characters that actors can chew on, audiences can kind of try to have arguments over fancy dinners and slash or cocaine about. Like, it's it's a whole big um, conversation piece that you can have about these. But there's also a Robin Hood element to a lot of these films. There's often, like, an undeserving or, like, an underdog who you're like, you just want to watch them rise to the top. Sometimes they can fall again. But, like, we're going to see in New Jack City, like, there's that Robin Hood element that you kind of love Neve No Brown for, even though it's totally a cover when he tries to kill a little girl. You know, it's really interesting, the complicated of these these characters and why we love them mm. you 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 have to like the guy kind of it's interesting that the there's rarely it's kind of boring when the gangster movie does not have an interesting gangster at the heart of it i can't even think of an example necessarily because like even the untouchables has a great performance by the gangster so yeah it's like <laughs> you, you do need a charismatic person 
Uh, and I think both of these movies are kind of held up by that, like a, like a great performance, as you said. Every actor wants to be able to be a villain, but just kind of be pure. You have to be like a megalomaniac. You have to be somebody that people will follow as well. Yeah, you have to have the dance moves like Christopher Walken in King of New York or something. You got to have that quality. Well, you also want the violent mood swings and like the erraticness. Like I love a lot of uh, a lot of Yakuza films and those are so famous for those giant. Everything's like super chill and everything's got like um, a lot of regimentness to it and very formal. And all of a sudden there's this like wild random act of violence that you're like, where did that come from? The baseball bat scene in Mm. The Untouchables, I think, is one of the best examples of that. Right. Where you're like, where is this going? And then it just ends up somewhere terrible. Josh, what are some scenes that you can think of that are like some of the best gangster swing moments? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a, a, a good question. I would say for me, some of the the ones where I get um, the most I find like viscerally impacted is honestly some of the British mm. ones. Um, get Carter or the Long Good Friday, yes. just but also maybe just because Bob Hoskins is such just a stout powerhouse mm-hmm. of a performance a little, you know, a, a little bit uh as as well but uh, i also find myself frequently going back to um for reasons that i think that you you were kind of speaking to the takeshi kitana mm. ones uh sonatine specifically is one that i go back to on just pure vibe purposes alone and it's because i kind of like the weird hangout vacation aspect um of it that then will suddenly explode and you know and with so informed by the kind of depression that the characters are feeling at the, at, at the same time um, so th- th- I don't know that, that that's the kind of stuff that really stands out to me, but of course you could throw in any of the, you know, some of the torture scenes that take place in something like casino is something that, you know, has stood the test of time for obvious reasons. And, you know, there's a, it's a huge genre with a huge history for that reason. I saw Casino at 12. It was too early to see Casino. We watched it as a sleepover of all places. Do not do that to your children. All right. And I think the other thing about it is, is like we're talking about how it's in all these different countries. It's so universal, but especially Mm -hmm. the American gangster film, like we're going to look at today, we're going to look at one set in New York. There's one in South, I mean, uh, Boys in the Hood is South Central LA, although that's an anti-gangster movie. Um, You know, like you're seeing all of these it's just such a universal subject that happens across everything, so it makes it very relatable. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's get into our first film for today, which is going to be visiting some classic gangster vibes. So while John Singleton's Boys in the Hood transported us to South Central L.A. in 1991, Hollywood veterans Warren Beatty and Barry Levinson took us to post-war L.A. in the Hollywood Hills. In a movie about the gamble, a notorious New York gangster took on the Nevada desert people's love of gambling, and his mall's moxie. Now, between the 10 Oscar noms and the trivia of it's where the Hollywood playboy would meet his wife of 30 years, Annette Benning, it's interesting we don't talk much more about this star-studded character study. Now, Josh, had you seen this one before the podcast? Was this one you were familiar I with? I had not. You guys you guys kind of pushed me to watch it, and I'm <laughs> glad that you did. I, I had some, you know, I, I had some fun with it, and I was also kind of intrigued by what you were just saying, which is that, you know, for a film on clearly such a prestige budget level and clearly, you know, with, yeah. with all the articles that, you, you know, you were forwarding to us as well, it's like, you know, it was a wow. very high-profile film. 10 Oscar nominations, the only Oscar nomination for Harvey Keitel in his entire career. Which is why I'm like, it feels like it doesn't come up much in this genre, that it doesn't, you know, it didn't quite have the 
staying power. And uh, yeah, I wasn't, you know, there's probably a lot of speculation as to why, why that is. And we'll probably get into it, but yeah, I was, I was very intrigued by, you know, considering the cast and considering <laughs> what type of film it is, it feels like this should be more of a staple than it is. And it's just got such a great name, just like Bugsy. You're like, yeah, it's yeah. nice. It's got the hard consonant. I like it. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't you give people just a very brief plot summary about what this is about, please, Josh? Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bugsy is uh, Warren Beatty's passion project that he'd been trying to put together since the 70s. And it was based on mm -hmm. a historical figure he was very obsessed with, the American mobster Bugsy Siegel, or as he liked to be called, Benjamin Siegel, because he, doesn't, <laughs> he really doesn't like anyone calling him Bugsy by his nickname. It tracks his uh, essentially rise and fall in a very, I guess I would call it a Scorsese-ish manner or what you people would kind of, you know, define as that now. There's mm, so many sure. films that I thought about while watching this and the main two were Casino and uh, The Aviator specifically because yeah. I was sitting there and going like his vision of Bugsy as is he a gangster or is he like a movie star or what is he? It's like the exact intersection of Sam Rothstein as the Jewish gangster and Howard Hughes as this character who is just completely obsessed um, with this vision that he has that is related to all of these industries that that he's involved in. And so you can definitely see. And I also read, too, that Beatty, apparently Howard Hughes was the other American figure he was really obsessed with and wanted to make a movie about and never did. It seems like he kind of he he has made it now, but it was well in his dotage. Oh, uh, it's that weird oh, one that right. came out That's like right. four years ago and rules don't apply or whatever. Right? Is that what it is? Yes, he he is he is Howard Hughes in that film. Yeah, totally memory. I, I think, <laughs> as I have heard, we all should. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very interesting um, to see Beatty's kind of a, a obsessions make it to the screen. And so much of this is just, you know, um, Bugsy's, you know, business trips to Los Angeles where he falls in love with with Hollywood and the movies. And of course, a uh, a woman, the actress Virginia Hill, played by Annette Bening, who would become uh, his his future wife just shortly after you can basically see it actually happen <laughs> unfold in the movie if you're paying close attention uh they they got married shortly after after the uh the shooting was done sort of a a series of him making deals with mobsters and maybe coming up with the very mm. idea of las vegas which might be a little no, yeah. i don't know if that's actually true or not it's not what happened we'll we'll get into that yes but warren Beatty mm. wants it to be true through movie magic um and uh you know of course being the uh gangster movie he has to get in over his head and suffer the tragic consequences of it as well yeah. and i appreciate <laughs> that both of these films have uh profit profitatory i guess um prophetic that'd be the word uh <laughs> death sequences that happen with movie screens like both yeah, both sure. things happen there so i was like okay i like this we've got these nice reflections um let's get into the the warren Beatty of it as you mentioned this was a uh, a passion project for him he's been wanting to put this together since the 70s but one of the accusations that's leveled of at him currently, as well as at the time, was that a lot of his characters were very, very similar. And this feels like an attempt to reclaim his Bonnie and Clyde renaissance. Like he, his, 
His career was not great at this point. Uh, 1990 was when Dick Tracy came out, and that was a wild swing that just did not pay off for him. That was like Dick Tracy coming yeah. out in the middle of like Miller's Crossing and like Goodfellas. <laughs> it, it, you know, just, maybe no. not necessarily the uh, reception he had hoped for. No, I actually tried to rewatch it because I was like, is it as bad as like people say it is? And it is, it's almost unwatchable. It's real rough. I, I will say the one thing we did study it in school for cinematography because it has it's crazy gorgeous. lighting. Yeah, that's like the one thing that i think people are still like mm, the lighting but yeah and also yeah. keep in mind before that was ishtar he he was <laughs> in a real hole yeah and it's uh he also was attempting to uh revitalize his career uh by being with young sexy starlets like madonna mm-hmm. so he hooked up with madonna in during dick tracy he's in her uh her documentary truth or dare extremely reluctantly <laughs> like you just see him not wanting to be there at all he's in her sex book um, but it, I think at that point, it's, I, I'm going to speculate gossip wise. It's probably, he was like, time to settle down. <laughs> I just can't keep up with these young fillies anymore. Cause I think she was 23, 24 at the mm-hmm. time. Um, and yeah, so it just, uh, it just, I, I will also out. say to his credit, I was kind of like, cause reading a lot of this press around the movie that you, you gave us. Uh, it was interesting where they were kind of talking about him as this reluctant father, but him and Annette Benning had four kids and it kind of yeah. seems like he, he also <laughs> immediately went on to make a bunch of more duds, but it kind of seems like he, he decided to be a bit more of a dad and, and let her have the career. So it seems like maybe he did, he did want a family <laughs> as much as Norman Mailer questions it, you know, <laughs> good old Norman Mailer questions, everything that's his job. <laughs> Um, but with that having been said, like, how do we feel this sits in like the pantheon that we have of Warren Beatty performances? Is this like a good resur- resurgence for him? Yeah, I don't, it, it, it's, it's kind of I had a weird reaction to it because I was so mo- much more familiar with his earlier films, because I think more mm-hmm. recently, uh, some of the ones that I've been watching were like Elia Kazan's like Splendor in the Grass, which is like more of mm-hmm. him in like mm-hmm. James Dean youth counterculture melodrama mode with like you know getting into lush romances with natalie wood or i mean even uh, i think i did like the parallax view recently as well um very much you're taken with just how kind of effortlessly charming he is uh no matter kind of like who who he's playing and with this i think he uses it to an interesting degree but it might have been to a kind Mm. of off-putting degree at the same time the kind of character that he is uh trying to apply it to here and i found the moments of when this would get more shocking or violent uh actually kind of shocking just because i was like Beatty doesn't really have that energy of this kind of movie he doesn't come (laughs) off to me as like a de niro where that danger kind of clues in in the same way it does and i'm not sure if that makes the movie more interesting or if it is something where maybe he wasn't right for it it kind of he kind of walked that line the whole movie for me I agree. Yeah. It's almost like it's poorly cast, but that works in his favor in a lot of ways. I also think I was very, I hadn't watched it before this too. I was curious. I know it's also kind of like, we'll probably get into it, but I think it's place in that Oscar conversation because it's a great year for the Oscars. And I think a lot of people kind of see Bugsy just taking up space. (laughs) So uh, I was curious in that regard, like, does it, does it deserve that hate? I think that what I found very interesting, especially compared to Dick Tracy, where I think part of one of the problems with Dick Tracy is he's way too old. Uh, Not that Dick Tracy has an age, but like he's weirdly old. Whereas I think his oldness and his kind of beat down celebrity works so well in this movie because Bugsy, I'm shocked to see all these reviews that are like, this is it's glamorizing because it's like, man, this guy is pathetic from minute one. He's constantly under a tanning lamp. 
Uh, you're seeing him watch these god-awful screen tests. And, and he also seems just, like, kind of on his back heel. As much as he can be intimidating and scary, you, like, uh, kind of immediately know that that's not how it works. Especially with, uh, you know, Harvey Keitel and Ben Kingsley playing the other gangsters and seeing how they comport themselves. I understand from Jack Dragna you stole 56000 and change. <laughs> the lion fat fuck. It was 42, not 56. Oh, 42? I thought you didn't steal anything. I didn't. But if I had, it would have been 42. Bugsy is never on their level. He, he doesn't quite know how to operate in that world. And it's very, yeah, he's just so psycho. And I, I'm, I don't think I'm a baby completist, but I don't think I've ever seen him play somebody like so villainous. You know, as much as Bonnie and Clyde, he's shooting people and stuff. He's, you're really kind of on his side the whole way. Whereas this guy, at least halfway through, you're like, Ooh, <laughs> even know. the things that are meant to be charming about him are a little off-putting in this, like him reciting all the dialogue that he's doing the entire time uh, throughout the film, because mm -hmm. he's like constantly like, I'm performing, I am putting, you know, I, I need to be, you know, ready for my, my close-up at kind of any moment. And then also when he's meant to be like cute, like in one of the extended bizarre dramatic scenes where he's like trying to maintain a family life and the sort of mob oh, deals yeah. that he's doing and he's baking his daughter a cake and he's running in and out of like vicious gangster movie scenes to have dialogue <laughs> with all of the various mobsters and he's doing it in like this cartoonishly large like chef hat it's almost like slapsticky mm -hmm. yeah one of the reasons dick tracy doesn't work is like the tone of dick tracy is all over the place because they're doing like these really serious terrifying things mm -hmm. but he's making it comic booky and it's very caricature -y. and this has like that almost caricature -y quality throughout his performance and it feels like he's almost in a different movie than everybody else is in. Like, mm. you keep waiting for, like, him to look at the camera and be like, that's all, folks. You know, like, there's is something so ungrounded with him as you talk about, you know, the Meyer Lansky performance with Ben Kingsley. Even Elliot Gould. I have never seen Elliot Gould do sad sack pathetic mm. like this. Like, yeah. he's always a sad sack, but he's what so pathetic in this. And you're just like... No yeah. wonder he, I know. Tell me about it. No wonder they shot him. Like <laughs> yeah. I would have shot him initially. Yeah, they, they, they just yeah. kind of find him annoying. They're like, dude, we're up. We're all <laughs> yes. we're walking off yes. from like a very serious gangster movie, a very different one that you're in, and he's screaming about Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. This is the only gangster movie I think I've ever seen where everybody is just barely tolerating mm -hmm. everybody else. Sure. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like usually, there's some level of respect that's happening, and people don't do things for that. But everyone just needs to be like. All right, we're not going to kill him now. Well, let's we'll see what he does and we'll kill him later if we've got to kill him later. Like it really is just yeah, like you said, this like mopey sort of quality to it, like a a, a resigned sort of quality, a death march if you will. <laughs> to, to me at least, I think that the, that Annette Bening is a real standout because yeah. it is such a weird situation. They are not saying that this was a great love affair. They are not saying that this guy, you know, hid his psychotic behavior. No, he was very open about it. Like even in the interviews that yeah. he was doing where he was talking about, you know, his, like why he was so interested in the material and symbolically how he represented this like, mm. you know, sort of like tragic vision of, of America. And he talks very passionately where he's just like, look, he, and he said he maybe hypes him up a little too much because he wants that sort of mm. epicness of it. Like, that's why he's like, you know, this guy invented Las Vegas. But he also goes like, you know, yeah. he had a split personality where he wishes to be. Mm. I think in the interview, he's like, he, you know, he wanted to be accepted by legitimate society, but he was a psychopathic killer. And he's like, that conflict <laughs> yeah. was really interesting 
to him where it was like Hollywood was his attempt to glamorize and conceal, you know, that side of himself, but it was something that he couldn't. And then he met this woman who was totally part of that world, but wasn't completely turned off when he revealed his kind of true nature to her. And there was this weird kind of perverted uh, romance between the two of them that you can feel that, you know, Beatty, Beatty seems really, really invested in, in the material in a way that I don't know that everyone making it was involved. I did kind of go, you know, Barry Levinson, he was on a, you know, he was on his hot streak around this time, but I think he has kind of, you know, I think people that have recognized that he's a little bit, he comes in a little flatter when he should be coming in sharper mm. in with, with a lot of his films. And this is one of those ones where I just meant, man, Beatty collaborating with Scorsese three years later on the same thing. I think you have a very, this movie yeah. has a very different reputation. Oh, totally. Barry Levinson's kind of a guy where, yeah, he, he never always fits the, like any auteur feelings, <laughs> but I think he, especially just because Avalon was right before this, they for sure went, this guy can make a movie in the 1940s. Well, I, do not, I, I just don't know that he's psycho enough. And not to say that Scorsese is psycho, but no. he doesn't have the same obsessions. I feel when I watch yeah. Howard Hughes going crazy and his love of movies and I watch those things, I feel that in the film in a way that I don't get out of Levinson in this. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. The performance, I think, that really shines through as like someone who is like doing their damnedest to survive is Virginia yeah. Hill. I think the Annette Benning mm. performance in this is absolutely She's stunning. Um, there's a if you people want to see the alternate of this, there is um, an awesome movie from I think 1950 uh, starring Joan Car Joan Crawford called The Damn Don't Cry, mm. which is like a take on the Virginia Hill story through mm. Virginia Hill. It's not her name, but it's the Virginia Hill story. And of course, because it's the Hayes Code, she gets punished at the end. But it is watching like a woman who her uh, child dies very young and she leaves her husband because fuck him, and then you just watch him let her like make her way up through all these different gangsters and things, getting more and more morally corrupt. And you get to see that a little bit here, but I want to see Annette Benning at this age do the damn don't cry because I'm like that. I want to watch this woman and the sacrifices she has to make. And that scene where she realizes who she's hitched her wagon to mm -hmm. when he's uh, forcing the the guy to like bark like a dog, and like, oh, yeah. like a pig, bark like a dog, same thing. And like you just like they cut to her reaction. You see the look on her face of like, oh, this is what I'm in for. And she, and she stays doubles with down, him. Like, yeah, and then actually yeah, starts challenging yeah. him in some of the following scenes. Yes. No, it's 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 such a yeah. a move that is like would be tough for an actress to pull off, and she does it. Yeah, if that didn't work, there is no way Be Be Barry Levinson would have kept those reaction shots in the. Yeah, film. and I I mean I was gonna say that one thing I think I can give credit you can give credit to Barry Levinson is knowing that she is that yeah. good because I think there's there's a, a greater focus on her. The fact that the movie ends not on Warren Beatty just being shot up, but on that reaction to her realizing unexpectedly he's been murdered and she's kind of yeah. in the crosshairs. Yeah, now. and well and, and like also she, Beatty like basically like forced her on Levinson too. Now I think Levinson totally agreed mm -hmm. to it, but Betty was or like Beatty yeah. was one hundred percent like I guess he wanted her for Dick Tracy. And he and, and oh yeah, she's supposed to be yeah, and, and then oh yeah, weird. and then he was like, I if she's not in that, she's going to be in the next one. And he said to Levinson, like she mm. she's so amazing, I'm going to marry her. I think was the quote that I saw. And then he and then wow. he, and this was before they even started shooting and before you know any anything yeah. had kind of sparked up. So it was just yeah. He also said to her, "I promise I will not hit on you while we are making oh. this movie." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> And and somewhat to his credit, she was coming off the grifters where she was 
doing a very good job of a version of this character and also, you know, was very attractive and completely naked on screen. So certainly Warren Beatty was excited <laughs> by that. Yeah. Well, let's get in a little bit into the uh, the journey this took to being made. So we do have to talk about James Toback right here, who is a monster, a straight-up monster, has been accused by hundreds and hundreds of women of being a monster. Um, and there's kind of an interesting... Uh, accusation, if you will, that James Toback has kind of put himself on screen. This was a passion project for himself as well. Yeah, I, I think you see it. And the weird thing is you hear, like not to get too deep into the accusations, but a lot of the accusations sound like what Bugsy was doing. Bugsy is yeah. also like incurably horny as part of his character, that he just loves women and thinking about women. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, that's the weird part. Also, I mean, most of Toback's characters are kind of irredeemably despicable people. Uh, who have borderline addictive personalities and kind of have a crazy conquest in mind. So I, I think it, it is of a piece for sure. Um, yeah, and it's unfortunate that that guy was actually like that. Yeah, the thing that stood out to me about watching it, because I actually have not seen very much of James Toback, so I was not sure what mm -hmm. to like compare it to other than, I guess, The Gambler. And I don't remember The yeah. Gambler having such bizarre little angry bursts of dialogue like this has and now obviously it really suits the character on one level but on the other level there is so much highly sexualized dialogue between the gangster mm. characters and it's so like unnecessary but in like a way that did give it some personality like there's a whole part where Bugsy starts freaking out at a guy who he thinks is like stolen money from him or fucked him on a deal and he goes do you want to fuck me he's like do you want to rape me do you do you want to and I was sitting there going Jesus like he's going really yeah. far with this and then there's yeah. another one too where he's like one character tells him that he wants like him to apologize and he says you can suck your apology out of my dick and I <laughs> and I was just like, it's just so, I don't know, there was a really weird energy to some of the dialogue choices that that were made, but were did give some personality to some of these characters. And I was just, it was what made me look up. I was like, who wrote this? And I was like, oh, oh, mm. ooh. <laughs> yeah. that would be it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When you're looking at how someone sort of revised a history, which is what James Toback has done with this story, mm. is that um, Bugsy didn't invent Las Vegas. It was not his idea. It was actually the owner of The Hollywood Reporter, who uh, was a huge gambler in Vegas at the time. There were casinos there. They were all Western-themed. <laughs> um, and he was like, you know what? I need my own place to gamble. And so he started to build the Flamingo. It's not actually named after Virginia Hill's legs. And so he kind of started to run out of money and he happened to cross paths with Bugsy Siegel and Bugsy was like, well, this is the mobs now. And he completely took over the thing and that's when he spent all the money. So he wasn't the visionary. He didn't do any of that. Um, and the most interesting thing, I think, was that the opening of the Flamingo wasn't a dud. Mm -hmm. Like it did rain that day, but like all the celebrities showed up. It was packed. The reason it failed initially was because they were bad at running a casino. Yeah. Like they could, they had bad dealers. They could not gamble. The house kept losing. <laughs> like that's why. So it's weird that you would have this like glamorization of this person that was not glamorous. They were just really bad at their job. They weren't a visionary. And when you read all the all the press, they're like, he was a visionary. He saw America. He invented Vegas. It's mm -hmm. like. No, he didn't. Not yeah. even remotely. He showed up and he was an opportunist. Mm. Just digging through various talking about this character and stuff. I ran into uh, the You Must Remember This podcast where I, I mm. guess she goes into a whole episode where a lot of the Bugsy Siegel myths came out of Hollywood Babylon as well. 
um, mm-hmm. where that like he Kenneth Anger kind of built a lot of that myth of this is a guy that dreamed of Las Vegas. Uh, mm-hmm. and also like what Virginia Hill was like, I guess there's a lot of question as to how much Virginia Hill was really involved in Hollywood or whether she was just another kind of weird psycho who was, uh, had been maybe in one movie once. Uh, yeah. She ended her own life. Like, yes, she did. That's very sad. But before she did that, she ran off to Europe mm-hmm. uh, with whatever money there was. Cause I think the, it, she actually ran not because of the mob, but because the tax collectors were after her. The IRS mm-hmm. was after her. She ends up with, I believe, Swedish, Swedish or Swiss skier who may or may not have been a Nazi spy. And then like, just like, it just, her life was just so fascinating. Like it just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. Like that's definitely not where her story ends. No, yeah. It's it's a very odd life. To go with odd stuff that I love that is in Bugsy, uh, I really love the completely goes nowhere but delightful uh, I'm gonna murder Mussolini that was awesome. which I yes. presume every single time he brought up like, dude are you high like what are you talking about every time yeah. he brings it up he's like no 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 I, I can get in I'm gonna kill him yeah yeah, with baby, baby, can we say baby Newworth is in this movie yeah. as well? Like, talk about your stacked cast. Yeah, it's very, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's weird. And it's weird because it's like, it's something you could probably leave out of the movie, but it's such a wonderful dash. And the fact that it ha- like, it happens once well after you think he's given up trying to kill Mussolini. <laughs> Where he's like, don't worry, I'm going to just open this flamingo, then I'm going to kill him. And then he's like d- disappointed when yeah, see, that, but the, That's one of the more life. like desperate details that they throw in where where they yeah. are trying to, because like very clearly they, on some level, they really want to be romantic about this idea Ooh. of, you know, him as this guy who tragically flew too close to the sun because he just had such great big ideas and he had the actual you know, sort of wealth and machinery in order to actually kind of achieve the level level of glamour and fame that the country was kind of headed towards. And you could see symbolically why they would try to arrange these historical details to get it. Because it's, you know, it's a better picture. It's a shinier picture. That's what they're looking Mm. for. But they also go, well, we do need to make him you know, it, uh, kind of still pathetic in, in some kind of way. And I feel like that's where they kind of threw those details in as they were like, well, what if we just made him a bit of an eccentric who was just, you know, w- if Vegas didn't work out, he would have became an assassin. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he essentially was just killing low rent. That's also right? true. Like, that's Wh- which did. also I thought was, you know, funny because uh, briefly going back to the Tobac thing, you sent, I think you sent us an article about Tobac and there was a detail in there that blew my mind where he wrote that he thought about murdering Levinson when it was because he was originally supposed yep. to direct it or something. So he was going to go Bugsy mode yeah. on Barry Levinson. Yeah. Yeah. This is where it gets sort of like the, the trailer is kind of wild about how this, how Warren Beatty didn't cut him loose soon. <laughs> so, so he, he gets him, uh, like he, he, he meets him in like the seventies and the two of them start kind of hatching this plan together. And it seems like James Toback goes away and goes on like this massive research binge. Like he mm. writes a 400 page document, which disappears. <laughs> there is no record about what happens to it. But then like in the eighties, Warren Beatty gets back in touch with him. And is like, you remember that thing we were going to do? Do you still like want to do that thing? Um, and James They're Tobac not going to let me make many movies after Reds. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> so, you know what? But I mean, Hollywood loves a movie about itself, which is the other reason this got nominated for so many True. Oscars, right? Yeah, like, for him, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a very much a Hollywood movie. success story for, for him in terms of yeah. uh, just how he was received. Yeah. Exactly. And so, uh, so, yeah, Tobek was really pissed off because he felt like he was being led along, that he was supposed to direct this. And then all of a sudden he finds out Barry Levinson is on board and he was like, wait, what? 
Like, yeah, well, huh? and, yeah. and I don't feel like Barry uh, James Toback is someone that you really. Okay, I, I, I kind of get how he decided to play that. Like, it, it makes sense what Warren Beatty did. Was mm. like, sure, we'll work together. E, I mean, <laughs> even that article, which I think is quite fawning about uh, Toback's creativity, lists a few times where you see the Bugsy. Because there's also he says he has a list of of people he's going to kill the day he decides to kill himself. <laughs> He's not going to no. kill himself before he kills a list of people, no. well, which is like, cheese. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and you can yeah. also see, too, that Beatty, you know, he was he was courting the reaction he was looking for. So who do you get? Well, the guy who just brought in Rain Man and just got a bunch of Oscar nominations. Yeah. Like, it, it, it does make a lot of sense with what he went to. But I do think, unfortunately for him, a little bit that, yeah, he kind of did go with the boring choice. Not that I think Toback mm, might have made something mm. more interesting, but like he could have went with, uh, you know, there were other filmmakers he could have chosen from as well. Yeah. He he, but, he really wanted to generate a hit for himself. Yes. Yeah. There's no style, it should be said, to this movie outside of the... No, well, and, and, and like the production design, yeah. I guess you could say. Like, it's very lavish yeah. and, you know, there is a really beautiful sure. like Ennio Morricone score to it, but... Uh, and, and it's the reason that that's the stuff that they ended up kind of getting the most known for because just, you know, it's the costuming yeah. and, you know, how, uh, you know, this this really was going to spark like a really big 90s revival in, you know, bringing back some of the, you know, the actual noir period stuff as well, right? Like you would have like L.A. Confidential mm. and Devil in a Blue Dress, like specifically this part of time in L.A. Yeah, but this is also what the indie movement that was happening at the time is rebelling against. This time, this type of like extremely mm -hmm. glossy, mm -hmm. star-studded, you know, violence, but the violence is still held back. Like, I mean, this is what Tarantino's born out of, right? This is why we were like, oh, thank God, he's actually cutting his ear off. Like, that's <laughs> that's why, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think that the, this is also just a, a, a certain style of Oscar movie of the time, which is like uh, a shiny, austere kind of long movie but that's where i think the the interesting script and acting choices make this movie stand out as a bit unusual because it is quite an off-putting film all right well i think that is the perfect place for us to go on to more random acts of violence it's new jack city and that's coming up after the break Cam, you know one of the reasons why I love working for Hollywood Suite? The money? <laughs> the money. The money is obviously number one because I have a very tiny dog no. who likes very fancy things. Sure. And, and that costs some cash, let me tell you. I think the biggest thing is that I just love how much care and attention is put into the curation of what goes onto the channel. Uh, you and the other programmers do such a great job of finding a huge variety of content that a lot of people haven't seen before. As well as, you know, the classic blockbuster favorites. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the funny thing is, is you start this job and you you think like, well, what does it matter that somebody gets to see the Warriors or something? Escape yeah. from New York, these big movies. But then uh, when you look at the landscape of, of cable movies and streaming movies, uh, just so many of these classics get lost, even the big boys. And like, forget about, uh, you know, discovering black directors of the 1970s, trying to put a lot of women directors forward. There's all, all this kind of wealth of material that has yet to come out. And it's always very satisfying when we can get something on the air that we are surprised uh, connects with people. Yeah, I found a bunch of movies and original series and uh, exclusive series that I've connected with, and I know our listeners are going to as well. You can subscribe to Hollywood Suite through your TV provider, or you can go to Amazon Prime channels and you can subscribe through that. That's what I do. And if you want to find out more and have a look at listings, you can check out hollywoodsuite.ca. Okay, let's get back to the show. 
Mario Van Peebles had big shoes to fill when he released his feature film debut as a director in 1991. He already had a couple of TV directing credits under his belt on shows like 21 Jump Street, but when your father is Melvin Van Peebles, a multi-hyphenate creator who made a serious stamp on cinema history with Sweet Sweetback's badass song, among other classic movies, people will be wondering, what is the second generation of Van Peebles bringing to the table? And the answer is an absolutely wild and fun gangster movie that literally name-checks and references the history of gangster cinema while simultaneously inventing its future. I loved this so much. I've <laughs> oh, never seen it before. It made me so happy. Cam, what is this one about? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the crying uh, Wesley Snipes gif. Now you understand mm-hmm. what he's who, he, who he's shooting. Uh, this movie is... Uh, Interestingly, a slight period piece, even for 1991. It's set in 1986 and 1989. Uh, it's about uh, partially about the crack epidemic. You know, Mario Van Peebles will say that this is like a an issues movie, but in reality, it's a fun gangster movie. Um, it, it is about um, mostly uh, Wesley Snipes is Nino Brown, who's the uh, head of kind of a double-headed uh, crime family. They decide to get into crack, and that the way to make their crack empire grow will be to take over a housing complex and they kind of successfully uh take over this complex and become just the kingpins of of crack in uh new york city uh which sets off uh undercover cop scotty appleton played by ice t uh and uh mario van peebles who is a very young you know police chief like you i need you to get that guy uh puts together a special task force of ice t and judd nelson <laughs> to uh, uh somehow take down nino brown and then through through various machinations you get you get the usual kind of gangster beats uh you know but it, it, it is shot in this crazy style that we'll get into and it has you know so many great moments and such a great soundtrack it's uh it's very of the 90s but also so refreshing to watch now uh, like it, what we're talking about with like not very interesting camera moves and stuff uh in bugsy this is the exact opposite where it can be the most mundane scene shot the most yeah, it's like a 90 minute jolt of energy in comparison i'm trying to imagine someone double featuring like we just did but like back in the day if you were like exiting one theater into the next one and it was new jack city you would have your mind blown <laughs> but yeah. that's what I'm wondering. I'm like, what would you even want to start yeah. with, right? Like, yeah. would you want to be like, oh, do you want to, do you want uh, like your chaser to be Bugsy no, so you can come no, back I don't down? Think so. like, I think you want to end with New Jack City because otherwise you'll, yeah, you know, you'll fall asleep probably. <laughs> I think in contrasting these two, we were talking about how much of like the old guard heavy hitters you've got in the first movie with like Harvey Keitel and Elliot Gould. This one, like first roles for Ice-T, first like Wesley Snipes is coming off Major League and that is it. Um, you know, uh, uh, Chris um, Chris Rock, this is like really his feature debut. Like you are seeing like young, fresh people who are going to be superstars, but like they are like top of their game right out of the gate. I mean, it's interesting that they're taking a lot of chances, obviously. Um, but I think Mario Van Peebles had some pull. He had, uh, <laughs> Ice-T actually did appear in a lot of movies through the 80s. People forget he's in all the break-in films. That's and he true. was in the third break-in film, Rappin', which starred Mario Van Peebles. <laughs> so there is some, uh, he, he was uh, around. Mario Van Peebles had directed a lot of TV and stuff. So I think he had a, he had a good uh, finger on the pulse. And it's also very interesting you you hear a lot of um, a lot of the casting like what could have been was also other great rappers. Chris Rock's role was supposed to be Martin Lawrence, but uh, Rob, comedian Robin Harris died, and I guess that kind of messed up Martin Lawrence. So they turned to Chris Rock. But it was really kind of looking around. I think specifically New York for like various New York personalities. 
uh, and who might work in this movie. And yeah, it does, it creates a really interesting, uh, I mean, the other cool thing that I'm sure we'll also get into is Barry Michael Cooper, who wrote the movie. Uh, it was an investigative journalist for the Village Voice. Uh, he invented the term New Jack Swing, uh, and he also wrote a whole article that was about like the realities of this, which is interesting because uh, this is not really about the realities. This is a fun. No, uh, I mean they got, that's what's so interesting stuff. is that you know this comes out not too far away from as you guys already mentioned, Boys in the Hood, but also Menace Society is not mm. too far away, and yeah. this plays more in. Well, I mean, I get this is the most cartoon version of even any of these, but you have like, you know, Ernest R. Mm -hmm. Dickerson is making something like Juice. Bill Duke has got deep cover. Carl Franklin is doing like one false move. And there was this moment of kind of reclaiming crime cinema, specifically with an African-American audience and putting in this kind of independent social realist bent to them. And New Jack City is my favorite amongst them specifically because it totally ignores the realist band. <laughs> and it was like, yeah. what if this yeah. was like, like very real, like detail written by a journalist. But if it was realized in this like colorful cartoon genre style by like the kid of a black exploitation legend famous for his totally. formerly experimental style and how he expressed anger and revolt in, you know, through, through the camera and, you know, like sweet, sweet back, which you already name dropped is just filled with, you know, I, I go back to that one frequently because it's filled with just so much fear and fury about poverty and racism in Los Angeles. Uh, but in a way that is still very shocking and harrowing to watch um, just how bizarre it is, you know, how he chose to dramatize racist cops, you know, pursuing this like orphaned black prostitute um, are around and just doing it in such a way that you, you know, it's almost surreal. Um, and there is, I mean, one of the scenes that I think about regularly from that film, which actually is, has Mario in it as, as the kid playing child mm. sweep back is where he makes the kid uh, have a scene where he loses his virginity to like an adult prostitute, mm. which has always just been a scene that's like really bleak and kind of tough to watch. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, have, so having a, a kid literally born from this kind of style movement do material like this, like, the, you know, you would think that it would be contradictory, but I find there's something so productive in the whiplash of it all. Yeah. We talk about how harrowing and fascinating looking it is, and it's a beautiful film. Uh, it made a shit yep. ton of money, mm. like a lot of money. Yeah. And so it was one of the first movies that showed that um, black exploitation films could be financially viable and that Hollywood wanted to get a piece of it. This is kind of doing the same thing. Like this is, is coming out and it, it's very much a new movement. Like this is the same year as Boys in the Hood. Spike Lee has a couple films uh, coming out just before this. So Spike Lee's already start, started the movement. Mm. Um, but really this is like blowing the door open to be like people are going to want to spend their money on this everyone is going to want uh want the soundtrack the soundtrack on this was enormous not just that we're talking about the fashion like this made the kangle hat a thing yeah bill nunn's brown fuzzy one is awesome i love seeing it every time it pops up. <laughs> yes yeah i i also think that there's something to be said that this film is so independent this was the highest grossing independent film of the year and it was made for eight million dollars because i to like go go to Josh's roots as like a exploitation interest guy. A lot of the good stuff in this movie reminds me of like the best of like direct to video action movies. Yeah. Cause I think they are so hamstrung and he's trying to make this big movie that, yeah, he's moving the camera wildly and stuff to make. I, I always go back to the, the scene that just I like scrolled back and rewatched was 
uh, when they're like raiding the building and Wesley Snipes like flips down like a vampire and slices the guy's throat. There's no explanation. He's just like hanging from his legs. And, and that's obviously <laughs> somebody being like, okay, we need to do this in a fun way. Just try to figure something out. doesn't have to make sense. And that's, uh, yeah, there's that kind of inventiveness throughout. But I think a lot of that has to do with having a low budget. And then the plus side is, as you're saying, Becky, like nobody cared to tell black stories at the time. So you had things like you could have a, an incredibly stacked soundtrack. You could have a lot of the artists appearing in the movie, you know, and, and people it didn't like you could have Queen Latifah opening the movie and you could get her for a song yeah. because Hollywood was not yet paying attention. To well, and this is why I've always, I mean, this yeah. is why I started a podcast about exploitation movies. Like one of my key interests in all of this was that, yeah, this, these were the kinds of films where the money men kind of turned their heads the other way because they went, well, that's kind of cheap. And we greenlit it because they had a cool poster and, you know, it has a concept that we know there is a, a trend to exploit in there. Right. And so where it gets its name from. And then all of a sudden you just had these people who were able to have, have pure creativity and expression and yeah under certain limitations uh and there were some things maybe they wish that they could do that they couldn't but some filmmakers really excelled under those circumstances and you can tell that people's you know he is someone who has studied this genre history he's someone who loves this genre history you can see all of the films that you would imagine you know, Fred Williamson or Isaac Hayes or Yafet Kodo being a part of uh, during their early 70s films that that they were doing. Um, and also going back to the, you know, classic Warner rise and fall gangster stuff like this. this the film this reminds me of the most is uh, Larry Cohen's uh, Black Caesar, which was him with Fred mm -hmm. Williamson doing Little Caesar. Uh, but obviously updating it for a sort of, you know, uh, the 70s uh, sort of a civil rights kind of attitude film and incorporating both the modern kind of filthy New York location work and also this, you know, this history of racist violence and, and oppression and was wondering, like, what kind of psychology could be born out of the gangster who also experienced that kind of trauma um, and, uh, I would say that Larry Cohen, despite being the satirist that he is actually takes the characters a little bit more seriously than people says people's definitely mm -hmm. is having a little bit more fun with, you know, giving them ridiculous <laughs> lines and have putting them in these really yeah. ridiculous set pieces that he, that he puts them in and, and the pulpier aspect of it all. But I don't know, it, it all still comes together for me because the exaggerated style is just so, so well done. I think for, uh, for me, what I, what I love is the idea of like, you have someone who's the child of a Hollywood icon. On, and he is name-checking other Hollywood movies in this basically non-stop. And the influence of old Hollywood and George... Like, they name-check James Cagney and George Raft. <laughs> this is some fly shit. Some George Raft. Some James Cagney-type shit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, he literally uh, does a speech with, like, Scarface's dead body across, uh, <laughs> across his face. Yeah, you know, so. like you're you're seeing, yeah. There's a scene straight out of the Untouchables in this. Like mm -hmm. they basically do the baseball bat scene here. Like it's all very Hollywood influenced, which is just so interesting. But it's really putting its own twist on all of that, and but it's its own commentary of we aren't stupid like them, and then they are. Like that's what's so interesting about it is like they're they're trying to learn those lessons, and you're going to fall into the same trap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I definitely. I mean, I think it's also just, uh, again, revealing. Uh, I, I, I've heard a few black critics say that, like, this is <laughs> this is fascinating because this is the first 
movie that's like acknowledging how much black people love Scarface <laughs> and how that just like <laughs> did inspire a lot of rap. Like it's it's in music and culture and stuff. But yeah, that it's that it's also ironic that you know loving it for the wrong reason to not. Well, yeah, putting that kind of attitude into the subject matter that someone else would handle as like a bleak, like socially conscious film about the crack epidemic, right? Like someone someone else mm-hmm. takes this exact same script in a way and you could see them you know not trying to turn it into like a bad taste kind of black exploitation you know styled um mm. film but i think that's exactly what makes it interesting even though i think for some people it's definitely something that makes it uh you know uh strange and maybe not work uh for them and necessarily that way but here's what's wild is this starts out as a draft of godfather 3 also yeah. that was what this was intended to be which you you see kind of the genesis of that and, and starring eddie murphy right that was the idea that it was it was supposed to be he was supposed to play like a nicky barnes subplot in godfather 3 or something like that they were trying to put Eddie Murphy in everything, <laughs> like reading about David Putnam, who wanted him to be Bond. And he wanted Eddie Murphy as Bond, which is like, what a weird, like, I, I can kind of He was of on top it, of the world for twist. like five yeah, years. I mean, he, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and he was the guy that, like, if you put him in your movie, you made a hundred million dollars, you know? So it kind of makes sense. But uh, yeah, what a... A truly strange. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to imagine it. It doesn't, you know, like some of some of it is mm. is wild enough that I could see some Beverly Hills cop. I don't know, maybe making its way in there in the side, like one of the cop yeah. characters or something. But I can, I don't imagine him as the Wesley Snipes Nino Brown character who is just like you know. Uh, completely, Wesley Snipes makes it completely his own. I I struggle to imagine this movie without him, honestly. Is that why Judd Nelson is here? Because they really want to judge Reinhold? Uh, yeah, maybe. They got the wrong judge. Uh, no, yeah. uh, I, I heard people discuss why they thought. I mean, Judd Nelson, there are, it's worth saying that, like, I, it is funny to hear, you know, Mario Van people say that this is like an issue film and whatever. But I do think parts like Judd Nelson's bizarrely acted, but statement that, you know, he used to be a drug addict. This is not a race problem. This is like a death problem and then also i think the way that the movie stops for a long rehab sequence for chris rock th- this is when i think i feel <laughs> the what he what mario van people calls edutainment uh, yes come well, through. allegedly he filmed i don't know if it made it on there i'm sure it would be on youtube if he did he filmed like a him talking to the camera kind of mm. like nancy reagan thing talking about how you need to focus on the message rather sure. than the violence and this is and he calls it straight up edutainment yeah so but that didn't that i don't think it made it to vs jazz i'm sure it would be there if it was but it's mm. uh it's just such a weird point of view when you made something so fun yeah yeah well, and I, I, I do think it, that it, it has similar contradictions that people also had in the 70s when black exploitations were, were, were being made, where that, you know, they were being made to cater to a specific kind of popular action and thriller and sort of crime movie trends in a way. But, you know, and but managing to smuggle in, you know, actual political subject matter and, you know, ideas and, and, and anger. And I think that there were cases where it came up where those two things interacted with one another in maybe a more contradictory way but i but there were you know ones that came out that did so in a really like cathartic way as well and so i think you know various movies kind of walk those lines and you know it'll be up to individual viewers probably what where it clicks for them but i don't i don't think that what he's doing here is much different than what you know they were doing with something like across 110th street where they were making like a heist procedural but inside a sort of like brutal class race realities of 1960s harlem 
or uh, but even maybe a better comparison is something like Chuck Turner, you know, which which is imagining yeah. sort of the black man as the shit kicking noirish L.A. bounty hunter of cinema's past. But now he is like it's Isaac Hayes and he's scoring himself and he's the coolest guy you've ever seen. It's this action fantasy <laughs> aspect to it as well. So I don't know. I think Peebles is being quite truthful to the genre history um here and uh because i i didn't i did note that a lot of people kind of bring up that it feels bizarre to have the sort of the title card at the end to be like yeah crime is actually very real by the way and all of this is sort of like a true story and we should probably deal with this and maybe kill our nino browns or whatever and and versus you know the more fun that it has with nino kind of throughout the film and Mm. but once again it's really not much different than when I watch the Howard Hawks Scarface film. <laughs> I get to the end of it and yeah. I'm like, yeah, this is supposed to be a movie about crime is bad and he's going to get punished, you know? <laughs> yeah. But boy, he had such a good yeah. time getting there, yeah. now, didn't he? And he died quickly, so yeah. that's good. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's just such a, a weird, a weird tone, especially when you consider that like uh, Barry Michael Cooper, as you mentioned, he was like a huge investigative journalist. He's the first person to write about the crack epidemic. And this comes out after Do the Right Thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, it's compared to Do the Right Thing all the time. So it's like, well, that is really talking about oh, yeah. the issue. And this is like, you know, fun. we're going to take over a building. Yeah. Like, I, it's I, fun and goofy. This does have weird moments. Like, I was pretty shocked with... Uh, I, my memory had faded a lot of this movie. But the, the fact that they're, like... I mean, they set up all this, like, revenge stuff with Ice-T. And, like, he, he wants to just shoot him dead. And they're like, no, no, we have to give due process that line that he gets by the way is like i want to kill you so bad my dick is hard i i I, I got to see this (laughs) recently on a 35 millimeter print here in in toronto and uh, the crowd went fucking nuts like everyone was like what the hell is that like i can't believe that he just said that (laughs) but it goes from that where the crowd is like yeah gun him down to then like uh (laughs) Wesley Snipes giving an impassioned speech about like systemic racism on the stand, and you're like, wait, wait, yeah, a minute, and, and he's like, all drugs is, is should that be guy right? Also, by the way, I kind of work yeah. for the government and the corporate heads. They're they're sneaking in yeah. some Bill Duke deep cover, like yeah. you know, investigative research into the you know the last ten seconds before he gets gunned down. <laughs> yes, and, and then he does end up getting his gun down. You're like, oh, uh, I don't know. You kind of lose where you're at by the end of the movie. Yeah, it's very odd. Well, let's get a little bit into Ice-T, because as we mentioned, Ice-T was quite possibly one of the biggest music stars on the planet at this point in any genre. Like, he was enormous. Um, We're not quite into the cop killer banning. That's 1992. Um, 91, he's still very much on top of the world. And I love this quote where he talks about meeting Marion Van Peebles in a nightclub, and he says, I was doing my iced tea thing, talking shit in the bathroom, because apparently that's what he does. I said something like, if you could take a microscope and find one molecule in my body that gave a fuck, then they'd have a chance. And someone said, whoever said that needs to be in my movie. And Mario stepped out of the stall, and here's iced tea talking shit to people. (laughs) It's just like... Wonderful. And he didn't he didn't think Mario Van Peebles was legit. He thought he was just offering a, a role in the movie to get near the bevy of women mm. that Ice T had brought with him to the club. But no, sure enough, he's like gets a script call the next day from an agent being like, Hey, they have a script for you. They want you to you to come audition. And I also like that Ice T had to like have a dark night of the soul with his friends, being like, Do I want to play the man? Yeah. <laughs> like, is this something I want to do? Which I mean now is kind of ludicrous seeing as he is like iconic for uh, law and order at this point but like yeah at this point this is not his reputation for 
being a cop or being or any sort of yeah, it's true. It's, it's interesting to similar. think about that because you watch it now and you go, you do just go, "Oh, this is the craziest episode of SVU I've ever seen." Where he's yes, you know, yes. He, 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 <laughs> yeah. you know, it has to have contributed to why he got that role because even just the way that he delivers dialogue, the way that he, you know, mm. some of the ways that he carries himself, I, I did find that. Uh, interview with the with the writer where he brought up that he really loved when they got ice tea on board because um he uh quote unquote uh located the gangster inside the cop the the ugly street yeah. side of a character <laughs> like that and and, and when I you look that. at how he performs it it is how it kind of comes off and honestly i think it's a huge reason of i mean like if it didn't have him this would be so lopsided towards wesley snipes like Ice-T is the mm-hmm. other aspect of this. Like all of the scenes with him and Chris Rock are the only other things in the movie that have as much personality as as um, Wesley Snipes does. Because otherwise you're just hanging out with Judd Nelson, you know, and is the worst mm-hmm. goatee that you've ever seen in your <laughs> yeah. life. And, you know, <laughs> yes. so, you know, Ice-T Ice, Ice being here, you know, finding the kind of, you know, re- revenge aspect of this where he does kind of give a shit about his community and being able to deliver those kinds of lines. Like, you can see why Mario was attracted to him if that story is true. Like, he delivers the lines where you're going to leave the theater and you're going to, like, tell your friends about, yeah, Ice-T said this fucking crazy shit. I can't can't get it out of my mind. You have to go see that. Yes. <laughs> well, there's yes. so many kids when you go through, like, Reddit and stuff like that, people talking about this who are like, oh, yeah, this movie babysat. Yeah. <laughs> like, this was put on for yeah. them. And it, I mean, it's like me seeing Casino at 12. You probably shouldn't. But, but this leaves a lasting mark. And this would have really been the benchmark of cool. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I think that there, it's a, uh, I, I heard a great talk where uh, a black critic was saying the, the monocult, like this is also like the monoculture, right? Like the, this, you need to remember that this movie beyond being just a popular film had such a huge influence on fashion and music. And like, like it just trickled so deeply out into all parts of the culture um, that it, it's yeah monolithic in a way, <laughs> even though there's all these great monolithic pieces of black cinema in this kind of like 90 or 89 to 92 corridor. Yeah, well, I mean, it also has um, that kind that, of music video energy to it, right? With some of the ways that it's mm-hmm. shot, some like yeah. it, it moves with a kind of musicality. It with, has a Greek chorus yeah, of rappers. Yeah, the, the, the soundtrack yeah. alone obviously has that quality, but I'm also thinking of just, again, how exaggerated it is in terms of look, like the urban decay production mm-hmm. design of it, of this like, crack castle that's like the gothic oh, yeah. art deco interiors for their base of operations like it almost looks like a tim burton batman film at at times in a way that yeah. kind of blows my oh, mind for sure. like huge uh expressionist shadows or the pastel colored like mm. neons of it like it's it is really you know and and, and even when he gets into the, the action sequencing itself he's doing these crazy rain maneuvers very squib heavy like slow motion violence that just has so much like beauty to the graphicness of it all with this before you get into the fact that he's showing like someone stabbing a dude with a sword cane or you know doing something yeah. or having a bmx <laughs> staircase chase to yeah. you know a hip-hop track of some kind like it's just it is it is a like a like i i totally get why someone would throw this on and just like leave it playing and you know and they're like oh, the kid doesn't understand that that guy's getting shot in the head just look at the pretty colors you know feel the the energy of it <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah there's a can yeah it's, it's candy coated there's a candy aspect to it 100 mm-hmm. percent as we kind of uh wind up here we should talk a little bit about nino brown because man he is a great villain but like josh what is kind of the line of 
a villain that we love to hate? Like, what makes someone who we are simultaneously rooting for, but we also want them to be taken down? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of goes back to what we've been talking about overall with the idea of, you know, how do you, how are you both a socially conscious crack epidemic movie and also a really entertaining <laughs> Black exploitation music video gangster film at at the same time, and I I do think that Wesley Snipes walks this line well as like this megalomaniacal, just like uh, ball of charisma, essentially, just like infecting That's every so scene cool. that that he comes into. And and like all cases, I think that there's a productive line and maybe an unproductive line that you can cross. But, you know, personally, you know, like there's definitely cases where the likability angle can be chosen lazily or it's just easy sympathy or or a movie can revel in sensationalized badness to the point of being confusing or incoherent. But I mean, I think that you can do both. You just need to find a good use of that whiplash effect. Like you do need, a, you know, especially in narratives involving characters who, you know, you are meant to kind of be attracted to, especially in this case. I think that Nino is meant to be, you know, he's this self-made man who has all of this excitement and charm. And, you know, he owns all of these expensive things. He has so much sort of pleasures around him, uh, both in, you know, the uh the just the the settings of of his rooms and all of the women that are around him and i think that in in the case of something like this the magnetic gravitational pull that wesley snipes it actually is as a performer does actually mm. you know productively capture how people would be you know swept into being one of his goons being part of nino's crew and 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 then obviously over the course of the film you know be disillusioned by him in a way as the more sort of ruthless and destructive nature is kind of revealed or uh, underlined. So yeah, I think that this and New Dick, oh yeah, a hundred percent. And and well, I mean, as as Cam brought up too, like that iconic moment when you finally have context for it, it's like him tearfully pointing a gun at a guy who used to love him and would do anything for him, right? And like when you hit that point in the yeah. film, I think the magnetism does start to go, oh, there is a darker side to this. Sure. Oh, I love the poetic justice of when he, like, just the, the poetry of him simultaneously trying to appear he's saving the little girl while using yes. yeah. I mean, he's just, a moment. Like, I was going to so say, it. all of it, like, they know how charismatic he is because they do the, yeah. like, reverse save the yeah. cat of human shield <laughs> child. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. I mean, he's got to be up there with one of the best cinema villains. He's so. Uh, yeah, fun, like a ball of charisma. And we recently rewatched um, Blade for the TV series. Blade 2 is coming up on the TV series. And you're like, it's so unfortunate they put him in prison for tax evasion because, mm. man, we missed so many very, very, very good Wesley Snipes performances, I'm sure. He's just making his comeback now. I want to see more of it because he's just so compelling as an actor. Yeah, he had one hell of a mm. 90s. I was just rewatching uh, the other night just for the hell of it, uh, the Tony Scott film, The Fan with him and De Niro. Oh, and, sure. and De Niro just tortures him for two straight hours, and it is incredible <laughs> to watch. Like he's pl obviously has more of the straight man role in that, but he he nails it. He is a ball of tension in that. He is sweating. He is yes. tortured. It's it's great. Then you even think of him in Tu Wong Fu. Like look at these like wild swings mm. in performance, yep. right? He goes from Nino Brown, which is like charisma <laughs> on fire, and then he's in the fan, and he is like pure straight man, and then he's in a dress, like giving an extremely mm. vulnerable, lovely performance. Yeah, like it's just like. And yeah. <laughs> so, you know, 
<laughs> like it's I don't know. Let's just let's just give this man his Oscar already. He's due. <laughs> How's that sound? Sure. All right. I think that is everything today. Uh, so I want to say thank you very much to Cameron Maitland for joining us once again. Uh, yeah, thanks. I, I did want to say one rabbit hole I briefly went down that I'm curious about and I haven't watched yet. But uh, if you love Bugsy Siegel, uh, you can see uh, Bugsy's Mickey Cohen, uh, Harvey Keitel, in a film called Virginia Hill by Joel Schumacher, which is his first film where Harvey plays Bugsy and Diane Cannon plays Virginia Hill. So I'm curious, Ooh. curious to dig that up. It is a TV movie, seems to have iffy reviews, but Schumacher gets me curious. Yeah, and if you're Alicia Fletcher, you can go, just go rewatch Bugsy Malone. That's fine. <laughs> sure, too. Children sure. as gangsters, go for it. Uh, Josh Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. Now tell people how they can hear you, see you, do all sorts of stuff. Sure. Well, uh, obviously, you can find me uh, over on Twitter and Letterboxd at, at the Josh L, talking about movies all the time. And if you're interested in genre films or exploitation films to do a podcast called Sleezoids where we double feature films every week. And I don't know what we've been doing recently. We go all over the place. We've been doing some uh, exploring of one Mr. Ed Wood Jr., mm. not just talking about Glenn or Glenda and Plan 9, but also <laughs> talking about his uh, depressed, alcoholic, <laughs> 70s softcore porno oh, era wow. as well, which we did recently. And uh, coming up soon, we're going to be uh, focusing on actually some prison escape and rehabilitation uh, dramas hmm. and all over the spectrum of those films. I just mentioned we were doing I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang going back to the pre-code era, but we're also doing things like Cool Hand Luke, hmm. uh, Straight Time um, with Dustin Hoffman and Raising Arizona with the Coens as well. So that's kind of our lineup for the next couple of weeks for anyone interested. Nice. Fun. No Black Mama, White Mama? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, but we'll get there. We do want to talk about some Pam Greer. <laughs> if that's a grim one, Becky, you don't want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> And you can join us in two weeks, where we're headed to the year 2002. And things are going to get, once again, a little spooky. It's Mothman Prophecies and Queen of the Damned, and we're going to be joined by Dread Central's Mary Beth McAndrews. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Cameron Maitland and Josh Lewis as our guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. <laughs>